Thanks for tuning in and making Res Life a part of your day. Whether this is your first time listening or this is a part of your weekly rhythm, we are glad you're here. If you'd like to connect more throughout the week, check us out at reslife.org, download our app, or follow us on social media. It's time for today's message, so let's dive in. Good to be with you this morning. Of course, this is the week in which we celebrate our independence, our 4th of July. It's our national birthday. And I want to begin with a Bible verse that's fairly easy. Uh, it's Proverbs 10.22. And Proverbs 10.22 says, the blessing of the Lord makes rich and he adds no sorrow to it. God's blessing is something that will enrich your lives. And it turns out that a lot of times, some of the greatest things that enrich our lives are the things we notice least. And I learned this from a founding father, Benjamin Rush. Now, Benjamin Rush is a guy who signed the Declaration of Independence. He helped do what we're celebrating this week. He was one of the 56 signers of the Declaration. He is, John Adams said, of all the founding fathers, and when you throw in the signers of the Declaration, signers of the Constitution, Bill of Rights, all this stuff, he said of all the founding fathers, the three most notable were George Washington, Ben Franklin, and Benjamin Rush. So he is a really significant founding father. This is the guy who started the first abolition society in America. He started the Sunday school movement in America, started the first Bible society in America. He's called the father of public schools under the Constitution. He's the most famous doctor in American history. He trained the first black physicians. He started academic education for women. Just unbelievable what the guy did. But as a dedicated Christian, we own a lot of his original writings. We, have, we own about 160,000 writings uh, from things from Columbus all the way through the Bible that landed on the moon with Apollo 14. So we own all this mass amount of history. We have two museums in Texas, and we own a lot of Benjamin Rush's handwritten documents, including his prayer journal. And in his prayer journals, he would read the scriptures, he'd make notes on what the Lord was showing him. And it's significant that, that in reading his, his prayer journal, he was going through and thanking God for all the blessings he enjoyed, just trying to be a good Christian and, and be thankful. And he's listening to all these blessings, and he goes item after item, and going, yep, yep, that's good, check, check. And he gets to one, he says, I thank God for all the times I have not fallen down the stairs. Go, Run that by me again. And what it is, is he has pointed out that some of the greatest blessings we have are things we don't notice. For example, I just ran up the stairs, and nobody noticed that because I didn't fall. If I'd fallen, you would have noticed it, and that would not have been a blessing. It's like when you go to the store to get groceries, you get back home, nothing happens, you don't notice it. If you have a wreck on the way back home, you notice it. That's not the blessing. Some of the greatest blessings we enjoy are things we take for granted, like our health until something happens, or our family until something happens, or a job until something happens. And Americans, more than any other people, I think we take more blessings for granted than any other people on the face of the earth. We have more blessings that we just don't even know, notice. We, we have lots of things we can complain about. But if you look at our southern border, according to the State Department, there's 127 different nations, people lined up down there trying to get into this country. Everybody else in the world understands how blessed we are. We're determined to, to criticize ourselves, and fine, we're not perfect. But everybody else would rather be here than where they are. So we have a lot of blessings. And the blessings that we enjoy significantly... There's 193 nations in the world today at the UN, and that number goes up and down every year. But when you look at them, they all have a governing document. They all are founded on some governing document. And historically, 5,800 years of history, there's thousands of nations, there's hundreds of constitutional governments like we have. What's the average length of a governing document in the history of the world? And the answer is 17 years. July the 4th this week, we celebrate 247 years. Nobody else has come ever close to that 
And we're so used to it, we just take it for granted. I mean, it's just another year. No, it's another world record is what it is. And so we have been really, really blessed in, in a lot of different ways. And when you look at where these blessings came from, foreign observers used to point out that America was different even back you know, 200 years ago. Alexei de Tocqueville, he's the guy who wrote Democracy in America. He came to America in 1831. He was traveling America because he said, you guys are so different from what we're used to in Europe. And he was a, a, he was a part of the criminal justice system in, in France. And he came to see the criminal justice system in America. And when he got here, he was so captivated with everything. He says, it's not just your criminal justice system that's different. Everything's different over here. And so he talked about it. And this is one of the things he wrote. He says, the position of the Americans is quite exceptional, and it may be believed that no democratic people will ever be placed in a similar position. Now, this is where we get the term American exceptionalism. It just means that America is the exception. It's not the rule. It's not cocky arrogance. Look at us. We're exceptional. No, no. It means we're the exception, not the rule. We're 17 years is the rule. We're 247 years. That's exception. That's American exceptionalism. And what is it that creates this? Because, it, I mean, other nations don't have it. Why, why did this nation have an exceptionalism? And this is something that, uh, that Alexei Tocqueville asked back in his day. And this is what he wrote in his, in his book explaining why he thought Americans were exceptional. He said very simply, he said, upon my arrival in the United States, the religious aspect of the country was the first thing that struck my attention. And the longer I stayed there, the more did I perceive the great political consequences resulting from this state of things to which I was unaccustomed. He said in France, I had almost always seen the spirit of religion and the spirit of freedom marching and pursuing courses diametrically opposed to each other. But in America, I found they were intimately united and they reigned in common over the same country. The Americans combined the notions of Christianity and of liberty so intimately in their minds it's impossible to make them conceive of the one without the other. So America was special because we believe that Christianity is what produced a form of government, a Republican form of government, which came out of Exodus 18:21, Deuteronomy 1, 15, 16, Deuteronomy 16, 18, going back according to those who made the form of government. We, we believe that the Bible, Christianity, was the basis of everything that we tried to do. We weren't perfect, but more than any other nation he was aware of, and certainly any nation in Europe, this is what made us different. He said, I've never seen this before. He said, in Europe and, and in France, I've always seen religion and, and politics going in opposite directions. He said, America, they're all linked together. They're, they're joined together. And so this is what produced that American exceptionalism. George Washington, of course, articulated what we had long known before Lexi Tocqueville said it. You, you go back before de Tocqueville by decades. Go to when Washington retired in 1796. Now, Washington gave 45 years of his life to public service in America. He was a military leader. He was commander throughout the revolution. He's the president of the Constitutional Convention. They gave us our documents. He's the president of the United States. And when he's retiring, he says, okay, we all know what has made us who we are, but I'm just going to remind us. And so his farewell address, he gave about a dozen items in there, just warnings to America. Now, remember, if we do this, this is going to happen. And they're really astute warnings, very wise, uh, so much so that you'll find that by state law in so many states, for the first eight years of school, you took a written exam on George Washington's farewell address, because this is what laid out who we were as Americans, how to keep us on track, etc. And as he goes through the farewell address, 
the area where he spends the most time. He said, now, you know, we're a brand new nation, but remember what got us here. And, and he talks about political prosperity, which is something that we all want. Now, right now, I would say America doesn't have much political prosperity. We're polarized. There's weaponization. We want to silence whoever the other side is. So we don't have that political prosperity But he talked about it, and he talked about how we can keep it, how we got it, and how we can keep it. He said, of all the habits and dispositions that lead to political prosperity, of everything that makes politics work right, he said, religion and morality are indispensable supports. So if you want politics to work right, the one thing you do is you don't separate religion and morality from politics. Now, makes sense. If you want your life to work right, you don't separate religion and morality from your life or from your job or from your family or from church. Why would we think that politics would work well if we separate religion and morality? It won't. And that's what he reminded us back then. See, we're starting to think like Europeans today. Americans back then, we understood you don't, nothing secular works well. And he continued, he said, in vain would that man claim the tribute of patriotism who should labor to subvert these great pillars of human happiness. Anyone who tries to take religion and morality out of public life, don't let them call themselves a patriot because they're hurting the country, not helping it. Now, see, this is the litmus test that he gave us so long ago, and this litmus test of how to have political prosperity. If you want political prosperity, what you want to do is promote religion and morality. We stopped doing that in schools. We stopped doing that in higher education. We stopped doing that in politics, and it ain't working out very good. See, these are the warnings that we knew, and this is what made us different from the very beginning. So when you look back, what causes exceptionalism, that's the philosophy that produced it, and that's articulated in the Declaration itself. If you go to the Declaration of Independence, there's 46 words up front that give three mutable principles. Now, the Declaration really is lined in, in the three sections. Up top is 161 words that give the six principles of government. Every single thing in the Constitution goes back to one of those six principles. What we're going to look at is the first three of those six principles. It's fun to go through all six, but the first three are super important. And then after that, it gives 27 examples of where Great Britain violated those principles of government, which is why we're making a new government. And then at the bottom part, it says, now, we pledge our lives, our fortunes, our sacred honor with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence. We're going to make this happen. So it's a concluding part. So go to the first part where they set forth the philosophy. Look at the first three principles. 46 words. Those words are real simple. You may recognize them. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they're endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men. So that 46 words, there's three principles there. Let me just take those three and, and look at them real quick. This is, these are the first three things on which American government is founded and on which it was based. Number one thing, we're told right up top in those 40, 46 words, all men are created equal. They're endowed by their creator. Now, of course, we hear, oh, no, no, that's not true today. They were racist from the beginning. And, and so we, we have this divide going. Uh, a lot of what is now called critical race theory. That's just a different name for what's been going for, for generations. But there's divide. Nah, they only meant white guys. They didn't mean black guys. We know our history so poorly today. Let me just give you an example of, of, of how little we know. Great Britain is credited with being the first nation to end slavery, 1833. Now, actually, America beat that by a long way. All the northern states ended slavery by 1804. Nobody did it before northern states in America. But the southern states is what kept us from all nation ending. So we did it in 1865. We were the fourth nation in the world in slavery in 1865. But go back to Great Britain, 1833. Let's just go back even earlier to America. When was the first black American elected to office in America, particularly out of a white community? 
First black American elected office in America, 1641. Matthias D'Souza was elected by a white community to be part of the state legislature in Maryland in 1641. By the time you get to 1876, there's been more than a thousand black officials elected to office in America. Now, just put that in perspective. When was the first black official elected to office in Great Britain? 1987. When was the first black official elected office in Russia? 2010. Wait a minute, 1641 in America, 1,000 officials by 1876, and we laud the nations that didn't do it until 1987? See, we don't even know our own history. And America's got plenty of blemishes. I can point out more blemishes than they can point out, but I can also point out all the good things that they never talk about, that they never point out. And so when these said, guys said all men are created equal, yes, because there were a number of black elected officials back in their day when they did this. And there is not a single battle in the American War for Independence, no major battle in which a black hero was not the hero of the battle. I mean, all the way through, we knew this. And I'm going to cover some of that tonight parts of history we don't hear. But nonetheless, they said all men are created equal. They're endowed by the creator. So the first thing we say in our governing document is, hey, we believe that there's a God. We believe that the creator God. Now, I've been involved in 13 cases of the U.S. Supreme Court. We were involved in one that settled this last week at the court. We're already involved in one for next year. But what's happened over those years, the court says, oh, no, no, there's a lot of people in America who are not Christians and don't believe in God. We've got a lot of atheists and a lot of others. And so government cannot take a position either for or against God. Government's got to be, that's not what the founding fathers believed. It says this is the unanimous declaration of 13 United States. Every one of our governments is announcing publicly to the entire world that we believe there's a creator God. So we start with the belief in a God. We acknowledge that belief. That's part of what we do. It's significant that, that if you look, for example, this is the first step in having a limited government. We always want a limited government in America. We want to be free, have individual freedoms. Limiting government starts with the acknowledgement that there's a power higher than government. Because you'll either have a big God or a big government. It'll be one or the other. If you don't have a big God in your country, you're going to have a big government in your country. And it will, tell, it will assume the role of God, tell you what you can and can't do, what's right and wrong, and what you can and can't be punished for. If you have a big God in your country, you'll have a smaller government because when you're self-governed under God, you need less human government. And so that's what we understood. That's why George Washington, on the day that we finished the Bill of Rights to the Constitution, those, those ten amendments we call the Bill of Rights, he called for a national day of prayer and thanksgiving to God. We need to stop and thank God because we have now secured these inalienable rights in the, in the Constitution through the Bill of Rights. Look at what he said about this. He said, it is the duty. And notice the word duty. Today, if you look up the word duty in dictionary, it says a responsibility, that which one ought to do. If you look it up in their dictionary, it says that duty is a legally binding contractual obligation. George Washington says it is the legally binding contractual obligation of nations, not of individuals, of political entities, of nations to do four things. What are the four things that nations have a legally binding contractual obligation to do? Number one, acknowledge the providence of Almighty God. Two, obey His will. Three, be grateful for His benefits. And four, humbly implore His protection and favor. That's what nations are supposed to do. That's not secular. Now, we've been told for a number of years that government only works well when it's secular. No, 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 that's not it at all. So the first thing we say in our document is we believe that there is a creator God. We say that officially. We announce that publicly through government. The second thing we say there is that they're endowed by their creator with certain animal rights. So not only is there a creator, but there is a creator who gives a certain set of rights to every human being. 
Now, this is the second step in limiting government because it establishes the concept of jurisdiction. So let me see if I can explain this. Um, I'm a cowboy from Texas. We've got the ranch, we've got the pickup, we've got the cows, the horses, everything that goes with the cowboy. And on ranch, I've had a red pickup for a number of generations of red pickups. I keep buying red pickups because I like red pickups. Well, my son works on the ranch too, and he had the audacity to drive onto the ranch with a black pickup, which is unacceptable. So I promptly spray painted his black pickup red because everybody needs a red truck. Actually, I didn't do that. Why didn't I do that? Because I can spray paint anything I own red. I can't spray paint what other people own red. So if I want to spray paint my pastures red, I can. If I want to spray paint my barns, my cows, if I want to spray paint the road, whatever, I can do that. But I can't spray paint other people's stuff red. And that's what this says. It says, hey, government, there are certain rights that came from God, and you can't spray paint them red. You can't put your mark on them because they didn't come from you. Stuff that came from you, you can put your mark on, but you can't put your mark on what doesn't belong to you. And so when you look at those inalienable rights, what's included in that? Well, if you go back, they actually told us what an inalienable right was. We don't use that term all that much today, but if you go back to John Dickinson, who not only helped with the declaration, he signed the Constitution, he said an inalienable right is a right which God gave to you and which no inferior power has the right to take away. You have the same thing from Alexander Hamilton. He said, inalienable rights are not to be rummaged for among old parchments or musty records. It didn't come from government. He says, they're written as with a sunbeam in the whole volume of human nature by the hand of divinity itself and could never be erased or obscured by any mortal power. These are rights that came from God. They didn't come from government. John Adams said the same thing. He said, inalienable rights are antecedent to all earthly governments. They're rights that cannot be repealed or restrained by human laws. They're rights derived from the great legislator of the universe. So inalienable rights are rights that God gave to every individual simply because they're humans. Now, what would those rights be? Well, if you go to Sam Adams, who's the father of the American Revolution, he said, in the Declaration, we told you some of them. He said, in the Declaration, it says, that among other rights are these. And Sam Adams, he, he quoted, he says, you have first a right to life, secondly to liberty, thirdly to property, together with the right to defend them. There's four inalienable rights right there, life, liberty, property, self-defense. And by the way, most governments do not believe in inalienable rights. Of the 193 nations at the UN today, only three of them provide constitutional protection for the right of self-defense, what we call the right to keep and bear arms. We're one of only three nations that guarantees that right to citizens. See, that's an inalienable right. It doesn't come from government. And most governments don't give it. It comes from God. So that's what we believe. Those are four of the inalienable rights. And then 13 years later, we wrote the Constitution and said, hey, guys, we told you 13 years ago that among other rights were these. Well, here's a bunch more. The First Amendment gives five inalienable rights. The Second Amendment gives two inalienable rights. The Third Amendment gives one. The Fourth or the Eighth gives another seven or eight. There's about 15, 17 inalienable rights listed in the Bill of Rights. These are rights government cannot regulate, cannot touch. They're out of bounds. That's the way they wrote this. So that was the second part is there is a God. He gives inalienable rights to man, and government can't touch those. And the third thing we said in the Declaration is that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men. That now tells us the purpose of government. Government's first and primary purpose is not to make sure the borders are secure, to make sure we've all got a job, to make sure the economy. The first purpose of government is to make sure you have the right to practice your inalienable rights. That's why we had that Bill of Rights, to guarantee that right to every individual. Significantly, Sam Adams, he summed it up this way. He says, government was originally designed for the preservation of the inalienable rights. What does he mean originally designed? What's a Where's the first time we ever see in the history of humankind, where's the first time we see civil government? 
And it's in Genesis 9. God is the originator of civil government. You have Adam and Eve back at the beginning, chapters 1, 2, 3, Genesis. They have children, Cain and Abel. Cain kills his brother Abel, and then everything goes downhill from there. And by the time you get to chapter 8, everybody's raping and murdering and pillaging and stealing, and God says, okay, we got to do it different. Let's just wipe everybody out, and we'll start again with Noah and his family. So here comes the flood. Everything's destroyed. As Noah is getting off the ark, chapter 9, God delivers to him the first civil government. The first civil law is actually Genesis 9, 6. It says, Noah, whoever sheds man's blood, by him will man's blood be shed. Noah, whoever commits murder, you take them out. Why? See, that's the, the basis of capital punishment. The reason is very simple, is by taking out, if someone violates someone else's natal right to life, committing murder, you're taking someone else's right to life. Anybody who's going to violate inalienable rights, take them out. And that's why when you look at it, Hebrew, Hebrew scholars call it the Noahide laws. Seven laws that God gave to Noah when he got off the boat. That's the first civil government. Here's what you do with thieves. Everything is designed to protect inalienable rights. That's what government was to do. And so God's going to protect the inalienable right to life by taking out those who violate that. That's what government's to do. And that's the purpose of government. That's where government originates. So this is what we have is those, those three principles. That's the basis of the American philosophy of government. As I mentioned, there are actually six. It goes to 100, 161 words, but these are the first three, and this is where everything starts. And it's significant that when you look at it, the first one is, all right, there is a creator. The second is the creator gives certain rights, and the third is that government exists to protect those God-given rights. Notice that all those are God-centered. There's nothing secular in that. They're all God-centered, which is worth noting that a secular government will never be a limited government. See, this is the problem that France and Europe is having. They're all secular governments, and you can't, you can't share the gospel in France. It's called proselytization. It's a crime. In Germany, parents do not have children. Children belong to the states. So you can't homeschool your parents in Germany because they're not your kids. A state owns your... See, all the things that we enjoy take for granted, where you have a secular government, you lose those rights. Now, it's striking that we've been teaching for the last several decades in American education that government's supposed to be secular. And so the recent chairman of the House Judiciary Committee, Jerry Nadler, somebody said, hey, there's the right to life, the Dobbs decision. We, we shouldn't be taking unborn life. And he said, don't give me this right to life stuff. He says, God's will is of no concern to this Congress. That's a problem. When what God says is right and wrong is not a concern to Congress, you're going to lose your rights because they're going to take your God-given rights, and the Bill of Rights will mean absolutely nothing. So this is why it's important to understand that. Now, Jefferson himself, um, in the Jefferson Memorial in Washington, D.C., there's a statue of Jefferson, and it's surrounded by five tableaus of quotes. There's, there's four on the walls and one around the top above him, and they're taken from famous quotes he made once out of the first book he wrote in 1781. In that book in 1781, which is carved, this, this quote is carved in stone inside the Jefferson Memorial. Jefferson says, and can the liberties of a nation be thought secure when we have removed their only firm basis? Now, according to Thomas Jefferson, what's the only firm basis of our national liberties? He said, it is a conviction. Notice the word conviction. That's a really strong belief. He said, our liberties, it's a conviction in the minds of the people that these liberties are the gift of God and they're not to be violated, but with his wrath. He said, if you violate God's rules on this, you're going to tick God off, and then we're all going to be in trouble if God gets ticked off. He says, government can't violate those, those inalienable rights. He says, indeed, I tremble for my country when I reflect that God is just, and his justice won't sleep forever. 
See, this is the belief there is a God that will hold even governments accountable for what they do. There's nothing secular about that mindset. And so this is what we celebrate on, on the 4th of July is we celebrate 4th of July. This is the philosophy that made us different from all the nations. Now, today, we've kind of lost that concept. But as you, as you look at that, strikingly, Abraham Lincoln understood this even in his generation. This is what Abraham Lincoln said to Americans before the Civil War. He says, my countrymen, if you've been taught doctrines conflicting with the great landmarks of the Declaration of Independence, if you have listened to suggestions that would take away from its grandeur and mutilate the fair symmetry of its proportions, let me entreat you to come back to the truths that are in the Declaration of Independence. This is our birth certificate. Come back to these fundamental truths. This is what government's supposed to do. This is how it's supposed to operate. Now, Today, we're told, oh, no, the Constitution is our governing document. Declaration has nothing to do with it. No, no, no. If you go back, for example, to John Quincy Adams, who was there in the Revolution. He was a political leader afterwards. He became an early president. John Quincy Adams said very simply, he says, the principles proclaimed in the Declaration of Independence were embodied in the Constitution of the United States. We took the guidelines of the Declaration and put it in the Constitution. He says the Declaration of Independence was the platform upon which the Constitution of the United States was erected. They never thought you could separate the Declaration from the Constitution. Constitution, they didn't put values into the Constitution because it wasn't needed. They put the values in the Declaration, then they built the Constitution on top of the Declaration. You have the same statement from Sam Adams. Sam Adams says, before the formation of the Constitution, the Declaration was received and ratified by all the states in the Union, and it has never been disannulled. Now, people today don't like the Declaration because it has that value system. Back when, when slavery was being fought, on the floor of Congress, the pro-slavery people said, don't quote the Declaration to us. We took an oath to uphold the Constitution. There's nothing in the Constitution about slavery. The Declaration has plenty against it. And then when we got to the Roe v. Wade debate in the, in the 1970s, I've got records from, from Congress where they say, don't talk to us about the Declaration of Independence. We took about an oath to uphold the Constitution. Declaration is the one that says right to life. Constitution doesn't say that. And then when we got into the marriage debate back in 2015, Congress said, don't talk to us about the laws of nature and nature's God out of the Declaration. We took an oath to uphold the Constitution, and there's nothing about marriage in the Constitution. Every time they want to get rid of the value system, they get rid of the Declaration. And see, the Constitution then becomes a secular document when it's a part. You can't separate the, those parts at all. So when you look at what we have, it's good to come back to the truths of the Declaration, which is what, what we're doing this morning, remembering why the Declaration is there, what it contains, and, and what its principles are. Now, within that framework of coming back to the Declaration, notice that everything we talked about this morning is about being God-conscious. Why is that an important deal? Because the Founders, first three principles, all about God. It's important because of what we see in Romans 1.28. Romans 1.28 says this, Since they did not think it worthwhile to retain a knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. When you stop being God-conscious, your behavior changes. When a nation stops being God-conscious, behavior will change. When a family stops being God-conscious, behavior will change. When you as an individual stop being God-conscious, your behavior changes. And see, that's why little bitty things such as a forward phrase in God we trust, our national motto, or having under God, this is why we have lawsuits on this stuff at the Supreme Court, because they want the God consciousness being... That's why these little bitty phrases are super important, because they help keep us God conscious. And when we're God conscious, our behavior, our philosophy, everything is different. It, it, it makes a huge difference. So, all right, so here we are, 4th of July week. What do we do now? 
Let me give you some suggestions on things we can do now. I want to go back and show you three things specifically that were talked about back early on. I'm going to start with Reverend Matthias Burnett. He's a pastor back in the founding era. And in talking to the people in that generation, and this, I mean, I'm going to talk tonight more about this. The founding fathers pointed to the church and pastors as the reason we have what we have. But talking to the congregation, Matthias Burnett said this. He said, to God and posterity, you're accountable for your rights and your rulers. Oh, so we'll answer to God and to posterity for our rights and our rulers? He says, let not your children have reason to curse you for giving up those rights and prostrating those institutions which your fathers delivered to you. See, they believe that one day we would stand before God and he'd say, I gave you your life. What'd you do with that? We'll have to account. I gave you your family. What'd you do with that? We'll have to account. I gave you your nation. What'd you do with that? I decided not to get involved in that. I don't get involved in politics. He said, no, you're going to answer to God and to posterity. So we're the stewards of what's around us. Is the school board we have today as good as what it was 25 years ago? If it's not, whose fault is that? We answer to God and our posterity. We'll answer to the kids that are going through a system that is so much inferior to anything we had even 20, 25 years ago. See, that's an accountability. So the first challenge I would give you is remember to be a good steward of the blessings we've been given. We can't coast on them. They have to be defended. They have to be protected. They have to be transmitted generation to generation. Be a good steward of the blessings we have. The second thing I would point you to deals with speaking the truth. Now, in this culture, in this time, speaking the truth takes a lot of courage. We do a lot of polling work, people like George Barna, we work really close with George. And what we know right now is that currently, 77% of traditional value Americans self-censor because of the climate. I know that's stupid, but I'm not gonna say anything about it because if I do, I'll get attacked. They'll just, I'll get deplatformed, I'll get you know, banned off, whatever. So we know stuff is stupid, but we won't say that because we don't wanna get in a confrontation. We, no, that's, that's not an option. You have to speak the truth. The Bible's very clear about that. As a matter of fact, when you look in the scriptures, we're told about heaven and hell very clearly. We know they both exist. We know heaven. We know that the way you get to heaven is, is very simple. It's John 14, 6. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody gets to the Father except through me. There's one way to heaven, and that's the way you get there. But we also know there's a hell. The same scripture tells us about heaven, tells us about hell. And we know that hell is a real place. As we see in, in Revelation 21, 8, it says, hell is the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is a second death. So that's a real place. Who goes to hell? Well, the first part of the verse tells us who goes to hell. It's the faithless, the detestable, the murderers, the sexually immoral, the sorcerers, the idolaters, all liars. Boy, that's a bunch of bad people doing bad stuff. They're going to hell. Notice there's a blank there. What's missing? The first list of the people who are sent to hell, it says, are those who are cowards and fearful. Those who don't have any backbone. Everybody else goes to hell for what they did. Cowards and fearful go to hell for what they didn't do. They wouldn't stand up. They wouldn't have a backbone. They wouldn't say anything. This is serious stuff. We're letting the country be shaped because we refuse to stand up and be that counter voice. Prophets did that. Jesus did that. Took on the culture. Wasn't very popular. Doesn't matter. It gets you blessed with God, and that's what does matter. So that's the second thing I would encourage us to do is really take the courage to, to speak the truth. That, that's an important thing to do. The third thing I would point to deals with the concept of patriotism. For the last 10 years or so, this has been under direct attack. 
Um, a couple of years ago, they came out with what they called Christian nationalism. You Christians, you're trying to create a theocracy. If you love your country, and so we're, oh, no, no, I'm not creating a theocracy. We keep backing away from patriotism, loving our country. As a matter of fact, when you look specifically right now, polling that's come out just in the last week, the more recently you've been in school, the more you dislike America. 73% of older adults are patriotic. Only 16% of the current generation is patriotic. They don't think America, they don't love it. Now, why is that important? Because anytime you stop loving something, what happens? You stop taking care of it, you stop working on it, you stop trying to improve it. If you don't love your car, you let it go to whatever. If you don't love your family, anytime you stop loving something, you stop trying to make it better. You stop trying to make it good. And so this is significant because when you go back to Dr. Benjamin Rush, Benjamin Rush, we talked about it, started with him early on. He says, patriotism is as much a virtue as justice. And it's as necessary for the support of societies as natural affection is for the support of families. If you don't love your family, you won't take care of it and you don't care how it ends up. If you don't love your country, you won't take care of it, you don't care how it ends up. If you want your country to end up well, you have to love it, which is patriotism. Doesn't mean you think it's perfect, it means you want to work hard to make sure that it's as good as it can be. He continued, he says, the love of one's country is both a moral and a religious duty. It comprehends not only the love of our neighbors, but of millions of our fellow creatures, not only the present, but of future generations. Being patriotic means you're trying to keep something good to, for the generations to come if the Lord doesn't return by then. And for those who live in this country right now, you want to have the best for them. Don't ever be talked about, don't ever be talked about backing away from patriotism. You know, even Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah, when he was carried off into captivity in Babylon, the Lord gave very specific instructions to those who have left their homeland of Israel where they love. They've been taken into captivity in Babylon. And Jeremiah 29, 7 says, seek the peace and prosperity of the place to which I have sent you. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. I'm sending you into slavery in Babylon, but you pray for that because if it does well, you're going to do well. The better your country does, the better you do, even if you're in bondage in, in, in Babylon. And so that's patriotism. Now, you know, this Christian nationalism stuff they talk about, blow it off. That's an attempt to get us as people of faith to back away from the process and leave it to all the secular-minded people to do everything. If we're not there, it's a whole lot easier for them to do what they want to do. And we've seen what they've done with education, with government, with military, with everything else. So that's the, the challenges I would give you. So summing it up, three things that I would point to. Number one is we need to be good stewards of what we've been entrusted. Number two, we need to defend truth. We need to be bold in doing that to get a backbone. Number three, we need to nourish patriotism. Those are important things. That's our legacy. If we're going to keep it going, that's what we've got to do. Now, within that framework, let me challenge you that if you don't know this, we have a book outside, The American Story. It goes through a lot of this. We don't even know the 56 signers of the Declaration anymore or their wives, what they went through, the sacrifice they made. I speak at a lot of universities at Duke University Law School. Put up the signers of the Declaration and said, Tell me by name who you recognize. They gave me two names out of 56. We don't even know who the guys are, what they paid. The story is, is where everything is. And that's kind of what I've been sharing this morning, some of the story. So that's something you can get outside. But the final challenge I want to give you, I want to take you back to Valley Forge. Valley Forge was a particularly tough time in American history for the American War for Independence. We didn't have professional soldiers. We had a bunch of shopkeepers and school teachers and citizens going out to fight the greatest army in the world. 
and they were under-equipped. By the time you have uh, the battle in Trenton in Christmas 1776, the British commander said, there's no way Washington's army is going to attack us because you can track the army by bloody footprints in the snow. He said his soldiers don't have boots. They don't have shoes. A lot of them don't even have clothes. They have no blankets. Literally, when we went to attack Trenton that day, two of our soldiers froze to death on the march to get there. And they kept going, and we won the Battle of Trenton. But the British were convinced that because we're so under-equipped, we're not going to be a threat to them. When you, a year later, to Valley Forge, we go into that encampment, and that's where it's so abominably horrible for the Americans. The winter's not that bad, but it's bad if you don't have a lot of clothes and shoes and blankets, and that's what they didn't have. So Washington would go out among the troops every day trying to encourage them, keep their morale high. These guys are voluntarily out there. They're not even getting paid for this. They're just out there for their country and Washington trying to boost them and bolster them every day. And he would write in his own diary what he saw as he went out there. He says, no history can furnish an instance of an army suffering such uncommon hardships as ours have done. He said, to see men without clothes to cover their nakedness, without blankets to lay on, without shoes by which their marches might be traced by the blood from their feet, and almost as often without provisions as with, and submitting to it all without a murmur is a mark of patience and obedience and my opinion can scarce be paralleled. These guys didn't even complain about how bad things were. They had it really bad. They didn't complain and we all benefit from, from what they did as a result. So Washington watches this for six months in the encampment as spring comes and they break camp. The last order he gives when they leave Valley Forge is very significant. He said, guys, I'm so impressed by what I've seen all winter long. I've never seen such patriotism like this. I've never seen people love their country as much as I've seen. And he said, but I've got to add one more thing. He said, to the distinguished character of patriot, you've all been patriots, I've never seen this before. He said, to the distinguished character of patriot, it should be our highest glory to add the more distinguished character of Christian. He says, as much as patriotism is important, it's a whole lot more important to be a Christian than it is to be a patriot. Now, isn't that an interesting order, final order given by Washington Valley Forges? Guys, look, you just need to know being a Christian is the most important thing that you can possibly do. Fighting for your country, saving your family, that's all good stuff. But over here, that was Washington's challenge to his own troops. And so that's my challenge to you. Regardless of what you've done or haven't done, the most significant thing in your life is knowing Jesus Christ just as Washington challenged his troops back then. God put you here for a purpose. You were born into this time, this country, this place, this situation. He put you here for this time. Why? What's your role? What are you supposed to be doing? He put you here for something. You won't know unless you connect with him. If Jesus Christ has not become the savior of your life, you won't even know what your purpose in life is. You'll wonder and you'll drift. You have to know your purpose in life, and then you can do a lot of things that'll make a lot of difference. So if you're not a Christian, I challenge you to start there. If you are a Christian, challenge you with those three things we've talked about that will make a difference. Thanks for listening. We hope you've been encouraged by this message. For more information, if you're in need of prayer or just want to connect with the community, go to reslife.org, follow us on social media, or email us anytime at reslife at reslife.org. We hope you have a blessed day and we will see you again soon.